upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's a warning there for us. He gives us a witness next. He tells us about the witness of this money. It's amazing. He says, actually, the rust of them shall be a witness against you. <laughs> what amazing. The, the, the very money that you're relying upon is going to stand as your accuser one day. You, you were resting on your laurels. You were sitting back and relying upon this, this finance that you had. And he says, it's going to witness. It's going to testify against you. Instead of witnessing to your faith in God, it's going to witness to your trust in riches. They've heaped up much gold for the last day. But the problem is, is they'll find themselves like the rich man. Whom God says, thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. They've gathered it all up and they've set all these plans for, for the time down the road. God says, you don't have any time down the road, buddy. Your time is up. We see the spirit of wanting. Have you noticed how no one wants to admit that they're rich? It doesn't matter how much money they have. They wouldn't classify themselves as rich. I mean, there's nobody in here that would classify themselves as rich. And before you say anything out loud, let me get to the finish into this point. <laughs> Lest you throw yourself under the bus. You know, it doesn't matter how much they have, it's never quite enough. Because wealth is a relative term. It's a term measured by perspective. We need to have a right perspective. The problem is, is we need to look from God's point of view, not from our point of view. When we look at those around us and see that Those that are better off than us, we look and say, man, I'm still wanting. I don't have enough. You know, I saw a little comparison to wealth, and, and it was describing millionaires versus billionaires. And then for the fun, at the beginning there, it showed somebody that makes 40000 a year. And they said, just the comparison... Because it's all perspective. Because, you know, somebody that makes $40,000 a year, and you compare that to somebody that makes $400 million a year. He says, for this person that makes $400 million a year to buy a $300,000 Ferrari is like you spending 30 bucks. That's, the, that's for them, it's 30 bucks. They, they, they also compared it to uh, buying... I believe is a $10 million piece of property would be equivalent to you spending $1,000 if you make $40,000 a year. You see, it's all perspective, but they went on to describe and say, well, you would think that at some point they would think, well, they have enough, that I'm happy that it's sufficient. But the problem is, is when you're at that level, your friends become people who are at that level or beyond. You might have just bought a $500 million yacht, but you have a friend who just bought a $1.5 billion yacht. 
and the comparison of those yachts is like he man, look at mine's a piece of junk compared to his, you know. <laughs> now these are numbers we can't even comprehend, but what I'm saying is you understand the mindset of a rich man, it doesn't matter where you're at on that scale. It doesn't matter how much money you ultimately have. Are you leaning on that or are you leaning on God? That's why a mission trip is really good for anybody. Because you get into a foreign country and you get to see how somebody else lives. You see, in America, we really don't know what poverty is. You know, when I was in India, out in communities, people, dirt floors, no doors, no windows, mud huts, blue tarps with holes in them for roofs. Whole communities, that's, just, that's how they live. They're not like living on the street, they're not bums, that's their families. They, they, they get up and they go to work every day. But that's what they have. We went into some really nice neighborhoods. These people lived in actual apartments. Four to eight or nine people in one room, apartment. One room about the size, if you took the stage here from right here to the back wall and made that square, that's the 48 people living in, in that one room. There was a bed in, in, in one end, like a queen-size bed, which was a little bit of walkway on both sides, a little, little cupboard on one end with a bunch of clothes and stuff stacked on it, no running water, no bathroom. They had to go to a community bathroom down, down the end of the building. And those people were in much better condition than the ones out in the villages. You know, we're going to take a missions trip. I don't know exactly where, but in 2024, I've already reached out to our missionaries to try and line this up. Maybe you could go. But it really helps, especially the young people, to get perspective of what we do have. As you know, when we compare ourselves to Don Wilson, we, we, want, we want a lot more, right? <laughs> we all, we're like, man, he's got a hybrid. He gets 50 miles to the gallon. <laughs> I'm driving a Suburban, I guess 17. <laughs> I love my Suburban, though. God's been better to me than I deserve. See, what happens, beloved, is when money has too high of a place in our hearts, then we get to the place where we'll do the wrong things to acquire it. That's what we say secondly here, that money is acquired in the wrong way. Verse number four, he said, Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which ye have kept backed by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord. Here he's describing a group of people that were hired to do a job and then the employer, a couple weeks ago we talked about being a good servant, about being a good employee. Well, here there's some admonition to the employer. He says, listen, it's not right to defraud your laborers. He had hired these and something happened where he kept back by fraud some of what should have been paid them. Maybe he said, oh, you have to have it done by 5, took you till 5.10. Sorry, you're only going to get 50% of your pay. You know, whatever the circumstances was, somehow he defrauded them. And he, 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 that's what happens when money has too high of a value. When that's what we value most, we'll be willing to be dishonest to get it. We'll be willing to lose our testimony to get it. 
will be willing to defraud or hurt other people to get it. But when those things that are of utmost importance are kept at the forefront, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. There's no way you would sacrifice your name for a few dollars if we had a right perspective. And we see the wrong use or the wrong application of money. In verse number five, he says, You lived in pleasure on earth, and being wanton, you've nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and, have, and he doth not resist you. He describes here one who is life, who's been full of pleasure, but still is wanton. He had all that he could want, but still wanted more. You know, beloved, let me tell you, it's not wrong if God blesses you with good possessions. It actually can stand as a testament to God's goodness to his people. It can be just a testimony to the world of how God blesses his, his people. But how are you using his blessing? How are you using what he's provided and what he's given Self-indulgent, lavish living is wrong. If you're living beyond your means, whatever those means are, it's wrong. You say, well, I have to live beyond my means because I don't have what they have. No, you don't. Not everybody in your house has to have a cell phone. Not every, you don't have to have... I don't, do keep, people still buy cable? I don't know. We've never had cable, but, you know, you don't have to have cable. You know, you don't have to have high-speed internet at your house. You're like, what? (laughs) Yes, we do. What would we do without high-speed internet at our house? You would live. You know, stop looking at the neighbors. Stop looking at somebody else. Just look at God and say, God, I want to please you. This is what you've blessed me with. I want to live inside of those means. And you know what? You'll find that God will bless you more. And your ability to bless others will grow and expand. You know, if you're hoarding instead of helping, you're wrong. God is not going to bless the misapplication of your gifts. We need to learn to lean on God concerning our substance. We need to learn to lean on God concerning our suffering. In verses 7 through 12 here, he describes and gives to us uh, this idea of enduring suffering. Be patient, therefore, he says. Verses 7 and 8, first we see the work. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. This idea of being patient means literally to have a long spirit, or the idea of not losing heart. Don't lose heart. He says, be patient. He says, don't lose heart. You know, many things in life can cause us to lose heart. We had a testimony tonight. Somebody who was 
experienced great victory and, and moving forward for God, except hardship came. And it prompted the possibility of losing heart. And she said, God, don't, don't let me lose heart. Don't let me lose the ground that I've made for you. Help me to keep moving forward for you. Sometimes hardship causes us to lose heart. Sometimes heartbreak causes us to lose heart. There's family or friends, situations that come into our lives, even sometimes between church family. Heartbreak. Maybe they meant to, maybe they didn't mean to. Whatever the circumstance was, you're you're broken. You're hurt. And it causes you to lose heart. You say, I'm not sure church and following God and doing all this, I don't even know if it's worth it. I'm just not, I just, I've tried so hard and now look at the heartbreak I'm living with. Many Christians, Christ looked at the disciples and said, will you also go away? Many had lost heart and walked away. Sometimes it's a headwind that's too strong that causes you to lose heart. You ever feel like giving up? Does it just feel like you're tired of pushing through the wind? You're tired of pushing uphill? You know, our four-wheeler broke down. It's had issues for a long time, and I've just been babying it along. And it broke down at the back of the property, and Caleb and I were with it. And I'm like, well, we'll just push it up to the barn. We started off pretty good. We were pushing this thing, but the driveway has a little bit of incline as you're getting towards the house. And man, we were really starting to struggle. Matt uh, saw us struggling, and he came up behind us and, uh, and jumped in and helped them. And that made a big difference because, man, we were, I was like, maybe I should have got the truck and pulled it up there because <laughs> pushing it was just, it was getting difficult. Sometimes the longer you're pushing against something, the harder it gets. And you, you want to lose heart. You know, Satan's going to keep that hill there as long as he can. He's going to keep that struggle as long as he can. Don't, don't lose heart. He says, be patient. In verse 9, he describes the, the whiner. He says, listen, it's not time to grumble. It's not time to complain. Not time to bicker or uh, argue amongst one another. The Lord is at the door. He says, the time is near. God is ready to come back. Let me ask you, beloved, would you be jealous of a brother or sister in Christ tonight of what they had? If you knew that at the close of the service this evening, God was coming back? I don't care that Brother Don has a Toyota and gets 50 miles to the gallon. Hallelujah. I'm going to heaven tonight. I don't need it. I'm going to be able to fly. I'm going to be able to speed a thought and go where I want to go. I don't need that Toyota. He can drive it himself. <laughs> I better not say that. <laughs> he can drive it after we're gone. Amen. <laughs> no. He's going to be up there with us. Somebody else will have it. It'll be sitting here in the parking lot. Hallelujah. Listen, sometimes we get so caught up in things in this world. But if we just kept the idea that, hey, he's coming soon. He's at the door. The time draweth nigh, he says. Would you be offended at your brother or sister or your family member, whatever person has caused that offense? Would it be something you would be holding on to if you knew you were going to see Jesus tonight? 
say, no, that really doesn't matter that much. In the grand scheme of things, that really doesn't make a difference. But he's coming soon. He's coming soon. He gives to us two examples in verse 10 and 11. You can read those, but he says here, he talks about the prophets and about Job. These people that were patient, that were long-suffering, that, that didn't give up, they didn't quit. The prophets, men just like you and I, but they learned how to lean on God. They learned how to follow God. And I can put in my notes here several prophets and, and talk about the scenarios and situations. But for the sake of time, we're not going to go there. Just You know the stories. The prophets, they just followed God. Kept doing what God wanted him to do. They learned how to lean on God, and God brought great victory. My goodness, you think about Job. The Bible says he was a patient man, upright, eschewed evil. What he went through, there's no comparison to anything we've ever endured. God's mercy endures forever, and his grace is always sufficient. In verse number 12, there he gives a challenge. To him, he says, listen, let your yeas be yeas and your nays be nays. Let your word be to stand for something. Then we see, lastly, tonight in verse 13 through 20, this concerning our supplication. Concerning prayer and dealing with sickness. He says, any among you afflicted, let him pray. Let him pray. We see this real focus on prayer between verses 13 to 18. I guess let's just, let's just read it. He says, let him pray. He says, is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And, pray the, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins... They shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. This passage of scripture here, we see those that might be given to worry. I suppose there's little else that could cause somebody to worry more than physical ailment, than a trial in the flesh, than getting the call that they're not sure what they can do. That can cause us to worry, but he says we need to pray. God has blessed our doctors and hospitals with enormous ability today, and the amount of knowledge is, is phenomenal, what they can do today. What's at our disposal, we ought to take advantage of. We, we don't believe, like some groups, that, well, if God wants you better, you'll get better. God gave you a doctor that has a medicine to get you better. You're the dummy, you didn't go take it. <laughs> I mean, here it is. You know, you take advantage of, of abilities that God has given. If there's somebody that has the skills and the wisdom to try and help you through it, then, then yeah, then do it. But we know ultimately he's the great physician. That he is the one that we're leaning on, that we're relying on. Physical 
ailments, leaning on Him, leaning on Him in prayer. And so much more could be said about these, but we see verse 19 through 20, the wanderer, the wanderer. That's amazing. You see there, he says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. This wanderer is somebody that errs from the truth. We see his condition first. It's somebody that, that wandering, that, that turning, really, that error. Error from truth means to turn away from truth. Sometimes, beloved, it's persecution that causes somebody to wander. But the Bible's pretty clear that most of the time, it's our own passion that causes us to wander. As a matter of fact, in James chapter 1, he tells us that we're drawn away and enticed by our own what? Our own lust. It's our own passions many times that cause us to wander. But here, God implores us, encourages us to draw them back. To find those that are prone to wander. And beloved, if we realize that any one of us are prone to wander, then we ought to have some grace with those who have wandered. We shouldn't be looking down our nose at them. We shouldn't be throwing rocks at them. We shouldn't be saying, oh, them, them wicked people, they're, they're out of church right now. No, we ought to be striving prayerfully to bring the wanderer home. To get the wanderer back in the fold. Jesus left the 99 and went to find the one. That's the heart of Christ. You know, when I was a teenager, I gave my dad some problems. I was wandering. I was breaking my parents' heart. I didn't want anything to do with God. I wanted to live my life my way. I was looking for and wanted the day when I could get out of my parents' house and do what I wanted to do. And Dad started spending a bunch of time with me. Dad started being around all the time, which I didn't like. I wanted to be by myself. We had some conversations as a young man where dad looked at me and he just said, son, I'm taking this time with you because I love you. And I looked at him and said, dad, I didn't ask you to do that. He says, I know you didn't ask me to, son, but I love you. I had another man of God, a pastor from another church, pull me aside and try and get on my case and talk to me about all that my father was doing to try and win my heart back. And all the time that dad was taking with me, and as a young, full-of-himself punk who needed to be called on the carpet, I didn't see that. But he was trying to tell me that, and I looked at that man, and I said, what's he doing it for? I didn't ask him to spend all that time with me. I didn't even want it. I don't, I don't even want him to spend that time with me. He's got other kids. And the man looked at me and he said, he's doing it because you're the one that's wandering. 
The other kids are in the fold. He's taking his time with you because you're wandering. Because you're the one that he's about to lose. He's trying to get you back. That's what God does for us. Say, why is, why is he spending all that time with me? He's trying to get you back. And we ought to have the, the heart of Christ with those that begin to wander. Not shove them aside. Not say, well, they know better. They, should, they ought to just be here. Let's approach them with the heart of Christ. Let's take some time. Let's invest in them. Let's call. Let's minister. Let's pull them back through prayer and through loving them. That they would be brought back into the fold. He describes there, he says, if you, if you win them back, you save somebody from death. That word death is not the death that's described in the book of Revelation as internal separation. That word death is actually literally means physical death. It's talking about that God might take a wandering child home, somebody that doesn't, doesn't turn back. God's going to say, okay, your time's up. He says, if you can win them back, you might save them from that. That's what we do with the wanderer. Learning to lean. You know, it takes leaning on God to get a wanderer back. You know, I believe wholeheartedly that we can love them, that we can point to Christ, that we can try and pull them back, but God has to do the work in the heart. God has to turn the heart back towards Him. Even with young men, Caleb, come here. He's quickly getting to the age where he's going to want to make up his own mind. And because I'm dad and I've exercised authority over him my whole life, I have the ability to direct his steps. And I can say, son, you're going this way. Nope, you're going this way. Nope, you're going this way. This is what we're doing today. You're going to go to church today. I can force him right now But unless God reaches in here and gets this, that's why we've got to lean on God. As a parent, oh, I could try and make this happen all I want. But unless God gets this, I'll lose this boy. So that's why I can't do it in my own flesh. That's why I can't do it myself. We've got to lean on God to help us raise these kids. We've got to lean on God to help us reach out into this world and bring back the wandering saints. Learning to lean.